You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this month for our webinar. I am Michelle Camayo. I'm from Bolton & Company. I am the compliance leader here, which means that I lead the compliance deliverable at our organization. And I work with employers on a daily basis who are working and perhaps struggling to be compliant. We can have practical discussions with employers. And, and some of that is because we have the flexibility because we don't give legal advice. I'm not an attorney. In no way should any of our discussions or anything I say today be construed as legal advice, of course. I'm sure you know that. And always stay tuned. My big disclaimer is stay tuned for any clarification or, or further guidance on topics we discuss right now. Because as we have all seen, we, we're almost always seeing follow-up guidance because it's not clear in the first place. So it's a moving target. It truly is. So today our goal is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. I know that the HR leaders, business owners, you know, anyone at the, it's your organization making decisions or, or needing to develop policy, you want validation on what you've read. It's that second set of eyes and guidance where, where you may not have any. So the hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance for you. It's just me today, by the way. <laughs> Hopefully that's not too disappointing, but I should tell you that next month we have Nicole Cam back on. And Nicole Cam is an employment attorney. She's a partner at Fisher Phillips, who you've heard me talk about before. Fisher Phillips is fantastic, and so is Nicole. So I am excited to have her next week, but just know that she'll be the guest speaker, excuse me, next month. She will be the guest speaker next month. And we will talk about, we will really target employment-related concerns and not just, you know, benefits, if you will. Our agenda today is, as always, we've got the updates. We'll talk about key topics. In today's episode, we'll have our, our monthly segment, the Toilet Paper Talk, which is a review of things that have become incredibly relevant, just like toilet paper. And then we'll finish with a guidance wish list. And this is a podcast, by the way. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download a podcast, type in Kamayo's Compliance Talk. It'll pop right up, and you can listen to all nine of the past episodes. And if you want to focus on, let's say, FSCRA, well, those are probably the three, the first three or four episodes that we did. We talked about FSCRA in depth. So if you ever wanted to go back and listen to them, feel free to do that. We're going to start off with some highlights. I want to talk about furloughs for just a moment because I've seen this at, from employers this week. I have employers asking about what to do with furloughed employees or if they're furloughing employees now, what do they do? Do they keep them on benefits? Can they keep them on benefits or continue to or even sign them up for active benefits? We all know you generally can trigger COBRA at the furlough and you can use the reason as, you know, loss of eligibility, if, of course, that's accurate for your organization. But in the instance you want to be generous and you want to continue to offer the furlough's benefit eligibility, even if maybe they don't work the required amount of hours or they're not in a stability period, please be sure to check with your carrier. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of the carriers were only extending furloughs um, eligibility to a certain date. For example, we had an employer ask a couple days ago whether or not they could continue to keep a furloughed employees on benefits uh, for the rest of the year. And the carrier, I believe, was Cigna. And Cigna said, no, their furlough eligibility is going to end on 831 on August 31st. 
So essentially, Cigna originally said, if you've had someone on furlough and they're not working full-time hours, we're going to give you, show you some grace, give you some flexibility, allow you to keep the furloughed employee on your benefit plan, but only until the end of August. And we went back to them recently and we said, okay, are you extending end of August? Are you going to continue to extend that grace? And they said, no, they are not going to do that. So if you have employees on benefits who were furloughed, just check in with your Bolton client manager, with your carrier, and ensure that they can remain benefit eligible. Just a reminder there. And then second, I'm hoping this is some welcome news for those that work in risk control or, or have their hand in the, the personal lines or uh, business insurance. Our Bolton safety and health team is led by Stephanie Nobriga here. If you've had a chance to meet her, you know how absolutely wonderful she is. She has been leading the charge with regards to an infectious disease plan. So what happened is that Cal OSHA has mandated that an infectious disease plan now be included in the IITP. So we decided to uh, create a template because Stephanie was out there and, and our staff was looking and we couldn't find anything that, that was really helpful. You, you know, the, the employer was going to have to piece together a bunch of information and then try to cobble a template together. So our Bolton Safety and Health team creates, has created a template. We have one that is very specific to schools. It's, it's large, a large document because it has to have so much information in it. If you are school and you're listening to this and you're a Bolton client, please feel free to either reach out to your Bolton client manager or you can email Stephanie. Uh, and you can see her email address on the screen. So that's in an infectious disease plan has to now be part of your IIPP. We have one specific for schools, but if you're a Bolton client and you're in another industry, we're also working as fast as we can to, to make a more general template or maybe even one specific to your industry. So you can also feel free to reach out to Stephanie Nobriga and she can help you there too. COVID testing, we talked a lot about this last month. So if you did not have a chance to hear last month's podcast, go ahead and download that Kamayo's Compliance Talk if this information is, is super relevant to you. We talked about it in depth. We're going to talk about it again because it always helps to hear it, you know, a few times, more than once for sure. And I want to mention a few Trump executive orders. They don't really have to, uh, they don't really focus on any employee benefit type topics. You can see reducing payroll taxes and enhanced unemployment, but I wanted to at least talk about it and give you a frame of reference. And then the pending legislation. So we were looking at maybe as another stimulus package coming and FFCRA. The only thing I'll say about FFCRA this month, because we will talk about it next month, is that this month, we want to be careful when, as an organization, when you administer FFCRA, you want to be careful and recognize that this is also a moving target right now. And there are lots of changes and there's lots more activity because school is starting up again. So a lot of us parents are struggling. What do we do with our young children? Um, you can hear the pain in my voice, right? <laughs> because I am one of those parents. So um, the New York federal court introduced uncertainty for non-New York employers. That's kind of the big topic now. We're still waiting on clarity. But you can see I've written down a blog called FMLAinsights.com. You can follow all the FFCRA changes it, by going to that blog, FMLAinsights.com. Jeff Novak is the author of that blog. He was on our podcast, uh, probably episode, I think it was episode two. And he does a really great job of taking the legal information and then putting it into easy to understand terms for the employer so they can administer FFCRA correctly. So just this week, all I'm going to say is please follow FMLAinsights.com so you're always up to date and you understand how the changes are impacting you. 
since I'm on my own today, I'm trying to look at the questions panes at least periodically. I see we had a few people started off with questions today um, that looks like it's going to be relevant in other sections. So if you have posed a question already, just know that I, I will get to you when it, when it becomes relevant. So just hang tight there. Oh, someone asked if they can have a copy of the materials. Yes, that's always included. It usually comes Monday afternoon. You will get a copy of the, you'll get a link to the recording and you'll get a copy of the slides and the Q&A's posed. COVID testing. I'm gonna spend some time talking about schools specifically. Just schools is, is what I'm referencing on for these few moments. So bear with me if you're not a school. I have the next topic is we're going to go with non-schools, if you will. But right now, I'm focusing on schools. It is mandatory to test the school staff. And you can see that I've included a link to cdph.cia.gov. That is the California Department of Public Health. They have a list of facts for schools that is very, very helpful. And I have also pasted a few questions that are asked and answered on that specific site. I believe that, it, well, I know that um, the school testing and the requirement to test and the details behind it seem to be fluid. For example, the, the website here with the fact that the California Department of Public Health, they, they're being updated regularly. So although I've, I've, I have the questions and answers on the screen, go to the link to get those relevant questions and answers because I would hate for any, I don't want something to be updated and you just take what's on the, what the words on the screen because you want to go right to the link and get your live answers. I've talked to employment attorneys at Fisher Phillips because I've let them know, hey, there are a lot of schools out there who need guidance. So please, please, uh, you know, let us know what you're seeing and, and how fast things are moving or tell us, tell us what we're missing. And they've said there's a lot of uncertainty that they believe that there should be more clarity coming out soon, obviously. And so that's why I've linked the facts here. So who should be tested and how often? Well, they referenced the framework for K through 12 schools in California. School staff should be testing. And then they list teachers, paraprofessionals, cafeteria workers, janitors, bus drivers, any other school employee that has contact with students or other staff. And it says that school districts and schools should ensure that staff are tested periodically by their primary care provider or by referring teachers to a community testing site. And they give examples of recommended frequency. I always like those examples because then you have, your, you have something to hang your hat onto or at least a, a, something to guide you on, on what kind of frequency should you introduce. Their example is testing all staff over two months, testing 25% of the staff every two weeks, or 50% every month to rotate which staff members are tested over time. So you can see that. And I think a lot of schools are starting to grasp, okay, we have to test our school staff. We have to do it. I, I don't think that's in question. Then the second question is, well, who's gonna pay for it? How do I roll out testing to these staff members? What does that whole thing look like? And school, and so that question is answered on the California Depart Department of Public Health site for schools. And you can see it right there. Who will pay for the testing of school employees and students? Those who need to go test would either go to the healthcare provider or a state-operated community testing site. Now, I can recognize that that's not a nice and tidy answer because the easiest answer is, as a school, if it were me, I would say, well, let's bring someone on site and have them test our, our staff and we'll bring someone and then we'll, we'll have someone on site uh, twice a month and we'll rotate staff who are tested and, and, and then that will be, that's the tidiest way to do it. Unfortunately, the only way to do it that way is if you have a budget and you're ready to absorb the cost as the school. If you want your group health plan to pay for the cost of the testing, 
you will have to send your staff to their healthcare provider. And their healthcare provider then provides a referral. And then it can go through the group health plan. But the group health plan is able to impose cost sharing. So they can impose a copay or they can impose coinsurance if there are no symptoms. They can impose that. Otherwise, the employee goes to a community testing site, which generally then is there's no cost share that's 100% free. It's not the answer I think we all wanted. What we all wanted to see was, was that we could bring an on-site or that you as a school could bring in an on-site vendor and you wouldn't have to pay for it. But at this time, that would, that's not going to be the most cost-effective solution. The most cost-effective solution would be that each person needs to go individually to their healthcare provider or individually to a state-operated or community testing site. Okay. There are two different sets of regulations out there that mandate that COVID-19 testing be covered by the insurance carrier. So I don't want that to get confused. The first one is the CARES Act that has been around for several months now. But the CARES Act only mandates testing to be covered when it is medically appropriate. So are there symptoms? Has there been a known exposure? When we are talking about school staff, the CARES Act really doesn't come into play because Test surveillance testing, if you will, is not isn't medically appropriate. It's just we need to test for employment for safety purposes. And so care the CARES Act does not have a provision that forces a carrier to pay for the testing. So that's why the state of California stepped in and the Department of Managed Health Care here in California filed an emergency regulation that requires health plans to pay for COVID-19 testing for all essential workers, of course, including school staff. Although the emergency regulation allows the health plan to impose a, co a copay or a co-insurance where applicable. Well, I hope that brings some clarity to schools, of course. And the last question that I'm referring from that fact link above is, does the CDPH guidance encourage an active screening of students, staff, and other individuals entering the campus? Uh, screening, keep in mind, is going to be symptom checking, essentially, not necessarily testing, because we all know that, that testing is, is required for school staff. The screening would be of symptoms. And then you can see CDPH has recommended daily visual wellness and symptom checks prior to individuals entering the campus. So that's that's why a lot, for example, I dropped my kids off at a camp today and they took all our temperatures before we could walk in the building. So that's an example of the screening. I'm gonna stop here before I go on to the next slide and see if there's any questions I can answer relevant to this. Right, I've got a question here. One of my favorite listeners, uh, we're looking at hiring a company to come to our school and conduct testing for our employees. Our insurance companies required to cover the cost of the test, even if there is not a referral or order from the PCP. So I did answer that, but I'm gonna put it all together. Uh, the CARES Act requires insurance companies to pay when it's medically appropriate. So essentially, is there a referral from a PCP? Or from anyone, it could be a doctor who comes on site and then writes the referral, that's fine. If there are symptoms and it's medically appropriate, yes, the insurance company will pay for it. Uh, so it's all in how, how is that on-site vendor billing the insurance company? Are they going to code it as medically appropriate for everyone they test, even though maybe it's not medically appropriate? If so, then the CARES Act does require that to be covered by the insurance carrier. If someone has no symptoms or no known exposure and it's not medically appropriate, is the on-site vendor gonna write down that it wasn't medically appropriate and then bill the insurance company? If it wasn't medically appropriate, the insurance company will most likely deny. In an instance where a school wants to bring, on an on, bring in an on-site vendor, we are being extremely sensitive to and diligent to finding out whether or not the carrier will pay for it. So the best course of action is to go to 
the carrier and say, this is what I'm doing. This is how the company will bill it. Will you be paying for it? Get that answer in writing. No matter what the law says, you want your carrier on the same page as you. That way, there are no surprises if you do get a bill or if someone gets a bill. Okay. I had a question about, about FFCRA, and that's not something I'm going to talk to today. That's an employment law question, and you, you mentioned that, that uh, someone mentioned that Fisher Phillips and other law firms uh, have taken a stance on that. They're going to be the employment law experts, and Nicole from Fisher Phillips will be in next month's podcast. Uh, so join us September 17th. We'll talk about that in depth, and I will answer your question, but I first need to forward it over to Nicole Cam. So for the person that asked that question, Monday afternoon is when we'll send those Q&As. Okay, looks like we've got a good question by reading through it. Um, it has to do with schools and testing. Per California Department of Health, this is the question. Uh, per CDPH guidance, uh, the message is conflicting. Consult with local health departments if routine testing is being considered by a local agency. The role of providing routine systematic testing for staff or students for COVID is currently unclear. Hmm. I, I'm not sure that it's unclear. Uh, the facts that I've seen here, uh, if you click on the facts or uh, not click on, excuse me, go to the facts or if you look at the questions here, um, testing, it says who will pay for testing and who should be tested and how often. I, I think, I feel like that's pretty clear. So if you have a, a more specific question, let me know there. All right, someone gave us some good insight. When we checked with Blue Shield of California, they are not testing employees unless there's a medical necessity um, approved by a healthcare provider. Yeah, that's the CARES Act. That's the CARES Act. If, it's, if there's not a medical necessity, it's going to, um, you could have to pay out of pocket. But the California Department of Managed Care now mandates carriers to pay if it's for an essential employee, but the employee has to call their health care provider at Blue Shield. They have to call their health care provider at Blue Shield, let them know they're an essential employee and that they need to be tested. And the doctor will give them a referral that would look like it's medically appropriate. And then the carrier has to pay for it. Would on-site testing be covered for essential workers? The answer is the devil's in the details. Yes, uh, in, if the person is showing symptoms, yes. If the person is not, no. It's very unlikely that on-site testing is going to be covered. Unfortunately, Cynthia, that is not an, a question that has just one answer because it depends on, it depends on how is the vendor billing it? How is the vendor billing it? So the answer is, the that we have to look at the details to understand if some of the tests will be covered. Generally for schools, on-site testing is not your most cost-effective option. I know that we want it to be because it's so easy, but right now for schools, on-site testing is not your cost-effective option. I'm refer to who will pay for testing of school employees and students and who should be tested. And it says right there in the, the, in the fact who should be tested. It's tested periodically by their primary care provider or by referring teachers to a community testing site, such as testing capacity permits and, uh, excuse me, to a community testing site. So you can see in the answer right there, you need to refer the employee to their primary care provider or a community testing site. That is the most effective option and it's written right there in the facts. On-site vendors will be very tricky and you can probably expect some out-of-pocket costs that the school will have to absorb. Okay, um, I mentioned earlier, this is another question, I mentioned earlier that an infectious disease plan is required and Bolton has created a template for school. Are all companies required to have the infectious disease plan? Yes, they are. Cal OSHA has mandated that. Um, 
Why do they have and okay so you're just wondering for your specific company do you have to have one the answer is yes so that is mandated by cal osha for all companies we have first started to focus uh with on schools so that's why we created the school template first and if the person who posed that question if you're a bolton client you can feel free to re reach out to your bolton client manager or to stephanie nobriga and she will point you in the right direction and get you going on your own template. Now we're going to talk about COVID testing for all other companies. So we've moved on from school. So if you're a school and you're on the line, we're now talking about non-schools, if you will, well, not schools. And you can see here, this is testing that is voluntary, meaning there's no state order, there's no local mandate that you test your employees. So we're just going to call that voluntary testing. And I've put together a few questions so to give us a, a little bit of a discussion. Is it best practice to test? So the answer here is, is I can't answer that for you, of course. I can tell you that the CDC does not recommend testing unless it's done after a known exposure in the workplace. So I can tell you that CDC doesn't recommend it. Also, I can say that we've not seen the majority of employers test, but some certainly do. And before testing, we just want to caution our employers to, cons to consider the issues that could arise from testing including potential privacy issues, to the frequency of testing, uh, to potential false negatives and positives, etc. Because this, this is not an easy answer, our recommendation is just work with an employment attorney to create the most effective return to work plan for your organization. Can an employer require mandatory testing for its employees? Yes, you can. However, if the employer requires the testing, it is the employer's responsibility to pay in that instance. Additionally, the employer should consider whether they must pay for the travel time. So if you have to send someone to a provider to test, you know, uh, what are the ramifications of that from an employment standpoint? Do you need to pay for their travel time? Do you need to pay for that time off? You know, the full time from when they leave your office to when they go get the test to when they're off because they they are waiting on their test results, if that's it, the case. And so there's, there's a lot more to be considered uh, when you look at mandatory testing from an employer standpoint and whether or not is it really even best practice to test. So just can consider that, but you are you are allowed to require mandatory testing. The answer to that is simply put yes. And the question we we all have and we all ask is, will our group health plan pay for it? The question to that is almost always going to be that depends. For non-essential employees, the group health plan must cover testing when medically appropriate. So we talked about that. Are they showing symptoms? Have, has there been a known exposure? If the answer is yes, then yes, the group health plan must pay for it. If the answer is no, it's not medically appropriate because they're not showing symptoms. There's no, there's not been a known, known exposure. So there's no, it's not medically appropriate and this is a non-essential employee. The health insurance plan does not have to pay for it. For essential employees, including school staff, that are enrolled in fully insured medical plans, the state of California mandates the insurer has to cover the test minus any kind of copay or coinsurance. However, the essential employee must call their healthcare provider for a referral to a testing facility. So again, back to Cynthia's question, if you bring on an on-site vendor, you have not followed the protocol. You have to actually have the employee call their healthcare provider for a referral. You can't bring in an on-site vendor and then uh, and then try to get it paid for that way uh, for an essential employee. It's just uh, unfortunately, it's not that simple. Hopefully, maybe uh, there would be some legislation in the state of California that will make it easier. But right now, for essential employees, they must call their healthcare provider or a referral or go to a community testing site for it to be covered.
I'm going to stop here and see if I can take some questions. So the question, our office is located in LA County. Are we mandated by the LA County's public health to conduct symptom check screenings in addition to temperature checks? Uh, that, that was a good question. It appears there's some gray area. I've looked into this with employment attorneys. Uh, you do need to check, you need to conduct some type of screening, whether that's a questionnaire for symptoms or a temperature check. In my understanding, it can really be either or, whatever makes sense for your company. I know the majority of employers are doing temperature checks and they are doing uh, employer, employee questionnaires on symptoms. Um, or at the very least, they're doing temperature checks. So it helps if it helps you to know other businesses are at least doing temperature checks. But there's nothing I've seen that would force an employer to do both a symptom check and a temperature check. Uh, are we mandated, the next question is, are we mandated to keep the employee responses to the symptom check screening, whether it's in paper or online? Absolutely not. In fact, I would say do not keep them. Do not keep them. As soon as you don't need them anymore, make sure they are destroyed. Those records are destroyed. Keeping them, having those records on file, maintaining them is uh, has a host of data and security concerns maybe HIPAA, CCPA, um, and other federal or state mandated data and security regulations. So definitely do not hang on to those results if you don't have to. Great question though. I'm gonna switch gears and talk about executive orders. This one is a little bit fun, I mean, at least to me. Um, What's it, first, let's talk about what is an executive order. It's the means the president has of pushing through legislation without having to go through Congress. Um, I mean, that's how I put it. That's how I see it. That's not technically right. It's, it's really called a directive. It's not like he's pushing through legislation. He, the president cannot pass a law or create a law from an executive order, but it's, the, it's, it's a way to go and push a directive or push an agenda without having to go through Congress. Um, technically, an executive order cannot change the law. It, it manages the operations of, of the federal government. Congress can't overturn an executive order, but Congress could pass legislation that makes it difficult to carry out the order, such as removing funding. So let's talk about two executive orders that are relevant to our industry and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. The first one is that Trump came out and said uh, he was going to defer payroll tax for certain people. So the details of this or some of the highlights is that it's deferring federal payroll taxes, just Social Security, for certain workers until the end of the year. Deferring, not eliminating. So keep that in mind, just deferring it. It does not apply to the employer's payment of the taxes. It's a, it would be from September 1 to December 31st for a deferral period of up to one year. And then the deferral only applies to certain employees. So if the employee, any employee, the amount of whose wages or compensation payable during any biweekly period is less than 4,000 calculated on a pre-tax basis, and so you'll want to watch for those details when it comes out. This is, this is not yet enacted. It's not yet clear on how this is going to, to shake out or if it will. It should because it is a, an executive order. Actually, this is a memorandum, but they kind of act or the same. And he call, Trump calls it a, an executive order, <laughs> but it's a, it's a memorandum. Um, the Treasury Department has to issue additional guidance. So right now we can kind of sit on this and we wait for the IRS to come out and say, okay, here's what you do or here's what's going to happen. So we wait on the details and that's very normal. You know, a president issues an executive order and the eight and the federal agencies have to have time to react to it and then implement it or follow through with new directives. So right now we're in a, a wait and see pattern on that. 
the other one that's relevant as we work come to work every day is going to be the enhanced unemployment benefits. Trump issued an executive order around this as well. Here are some of the highlights. So as we know, the CARES Act benefit ended July 31st. Trump's executive order would extend the benefit up to 400 a week. And Trump said that states have to provide and pay for a portion of that 400, which they finally settled on 100. But Governor Newsom has already stated that California is not going to pay the additional 100. He's already said, we don't have the money, we're not going to do it. So if California decides to adopt those funds, it's going to only be at the $300 mark because that's what the federal funds uh, will allow for, are going to subsidize. But again, California has to adopt those federal funds. California could turn their back and say, no, we don't want that money. So they, California has to enter into a special program. As of now, the effective date is unclear because we haven't heard the final decision from, from Newsom. The benefit would terminate on December 6, 2020, or when the program reaches $25 billion. We think there's going to be some legal challenges due to the redirection of FEMA funds. So what the president did what he, is he said he directed the agencies to take money from FEMA and then give it over here to the state so then they can, they can administer these unemployment benefits. He's not really allowed to do that. <laughs> so a lot of people are thinking that this is going to face legal challenges. We may never see this. We may not see this come to fruition, or if it does, it may be. It may be, uh, it may have to cease and desist. So we'll see. We'll see. And also it may be moot. If Congress passes another stimulus, stimulus package, it's probably going to have an additional unemployment benefit built into it anyway. So I, I have a feeling Trump did this to put pressure on Congress to ensure that there's going to be unemployment money in, the, in a new stimulus package. Again, this is in a holding pattern. Pattern, we wait and see. All right, here's proposed legislation. Speaking of stimulus packages, we've heard about the HEROES Act for a while now. This is the one that came out of the House. I'm only going to speak to the benefit provisions in the HEROES Act. And I want to note that this is proposed. This is the House's version of the next stimulus package. It's going to include federal subsidies for COBRA. And, and it's going to be 100% subsidies for those who terminate or reduce hours going to cover the employee portion of premium for furloughed workers. It would be effective March to January 2021. Employers would have to pay the full cost, just, just like FFCRA, and use payroll tax credit excuse me, to be reimbursed. It's got a $106 billion price tag. The HEROES Act would include a public exchange special enrollment. It would include Section 125 changes, including increasing the dependent care FSA maximum significantly. And it would allow for healthcare FSA spend-down provisions. And it would expand FFCRA, the ESMLA provision, to the end of 2021. Don't get too tied to the idea that this is what's going to happen. Because the House has their own version of the stimulus package, the, the uh, Senate has their own version, and the two are not aligned perfectly. It, the final bill, if one passes, will be different. So this gives you some idea of what we might expect to see. Not relevant necessarily to, to benefits, but both of the acts from the House and the Senate provide unemployment enhancement expansion of the PPP loans, and another round of stimulus checks. Let's look at the, the Senate version. The Senate version is called the HEALS Act. And the benefit provisions in that act are federal subsidies for COBRA. And then it's an 85% premium reimbursement for COBRA beginning the first month after the act is passed and ending at the end of this year. So different, very different, I would say, from the HEROES Act. It includes a notice requirement. So the employer would have to notify their COBRA participants. And it includes, uh, it also includes for a qualifying event at the end of the termination of premium assistance, which is very smart thinking. Someone was very detailed when they wrote that in there, which is good. 
because uh, that means the final bill will probably have that language too because it's, it's smart to do that. It helps the employee or the COBRA participant. It allows for 2020 contributions to the FSAs to be rolled over to the 2021 plan year. And it provides grants that will help parents go back to work by providing uh, short-term assistance to child care centers, amongst other things. This is the Senate's version of the stimulus package. If a final package is passed, it's going to be somewhere, somewhere in the middle or it's going to be a little bit of push and pull between both sides. So please don't get married to the idea of any one of these. It, it, we, we will know as it gets closer to probably the end of September is, is when I'm thinking that we'll have, we'll have uh, something with meat on it. There's going to be a passable bill, if you will. Someone asked a question on guidance for cannabis companies on collecting reimbursement of payroll tax credits. Oh, that's a tough one, as you know, if you're in that industry. Not something I can answer here. I'm so sorry. Someone asked, can we ask an employee to get a negative COVID test before returning to work? And she's a preschool teacher. If she had a relative come stay with her for a week who came in from another country. Uh, now, I, first, I'm going to say I'm not an employment attorney, and that is definitely an employment law question, but I do know the answer because I have had questions on whether or not you can ask for a negative test, and the answer is yes, you can. I have one other question here. We have employees with 2019 FSA rollover funds, but with the pandemic, they are not able to use the funds this year. Would they lose their prior rollover in addition to the 2020? 20 FSA rollover. Uh, it, they should not. Um, it, there, there were two laws that sort of increased flexibility around FSA that were passed earlier. And so I would assume that you would have adopted these. One of them, one of them wasn't optional, it was mandated. And that was that you allow someone to submit for a claim all the way to the end of this year for um, any any plans that terminated mid-year and so let's say your plan your 2019 plan ended on 6 30 of, of 2020. i have all the way until december 31st to submit a claim against that 2019 2020 plan even though you'd be out of your grace period and your run out period so that's a mandatory law now, there was another law, but that was, it was optional. So you would have told, you would have had to tell your TPA that you wanted to adopt it, and then you would have notified your participants. And that would affect your FSA rollover for 2020. And that would allow you to give the employee time to incur and uh, not only, not only reimburse for the, the current plan year, but to incur costs beyond that. So the, my, here's what my answer would be to you is to contact your Bolton client manager. If you're not a Bolton client manager, contact your broker and ask them if you adopted these changes and to detail how that works with claims reimbursements. It's a little bit too complicated to get into without knowing your exact plan year dates and whether or not you adopted the optional mandate or optional provision not mandate, but optional provision. Okay, our monthly segment, Toilet Paper Talk. These relevant issues, things we never thought were going to be relevant, just like toilet paper back in March and April and May. Congress has adjourned until Labor Day. So I was saying that I think we might have a passable stimulus package by the end of September. That's sort of the general consensus amongst those that follow it. The House is coming back to work on a USPS bill before Labor Day. And in fact, they might be in session right now. Uh, it's unclear, though, if they're going to work more on a stimulus package. If they do, that could speed up the potential timeline we're looking at. But the key date there is we might be looking at a passable stimulus package by the end of September. We are seeing a lot of conversation around COVID-19 testing for schools. 
And I know that I had said this a few times, and I'm a true believer. You need, we need to hear things more than once as human beings to actually absorb them, especially when it's, in a, when it's on a new topic. But COVID testing for schools, bringing in an on-site vendor is not your most cost-effective way, unfortunately. The California Department of Public Health has released a set of facts for schools giving them guidance on how they can perform the testing for school school staff. And the guidance is saying that you need to have the employee contact their healthcare provider to get a referral for a test, or the employee can be referred to a community testing site, which would be at no cost. So bringing in an on-site vendor for your school, that is completely okay as long as you are aware that as the school, you're, you're going to need a budget, a budget, because your group health plan is most likely not going to pay for an on-site vendor. So that means you're, you will have to come out of your pocket. But the answer is in the details when it comes to an on-site vendor. So if you are considering an on-site vendor, please, please let us know here at Bolton. If you are one of our Bolton employers, let us know because we want to do the due diligence for you so that you, there are no surprises when the insurance company is billed. So we can sort of get in the middle between your on-site vendor and the carrier, and we can fully explain what you as the school can expect to absorb financially if you bring in an on-site vendor. Lots of employers have been asking what to do with their furloughed employees as it relates to their benefits. Do we terminate them now? Can we terminate them later? Uh, can we or can't we? It, to ask whether or not you can continue on with their insurance benefits past a certain date. As I said off the top of my head, Cigna is only allowing furloughed employees to be on the plan to the end of this month. And then the carrier is going to consider them ineligible for active benefits. So you would have to trigger COBRA. So that's just an example. I found a really great compliance alert that I wanted to share with everyone. It's a legal alert with regards to COVID-19 in the workplace. And it was released by Fisher Phillips. Nicole's going to talk about it in September, but I thought I'd at least give reference the article for you. It's called Four Common COVID-19 Misunderstandings That Could Place Your Company at Legal Risk. I thought it was very easy to read and very, there were very simple suggestions that for employers that could really help eliminate some legal risk for you. And you can find that at fisherphillips.com. Click on their legal alerts section and it is the third one down. You can find that there. Really cool article. Our next slide goes by quickly. It's a guidance wish list. This used to be a very, very long slide, and it has shortened up because we've gotten a lot of guidance. But we've got FFCRA clarification on the list. That's a new one. And that's because a, a New York federal judge really kind of threw a wrench in FFCRA guidance from the DOL. And it's unclear whether or not that that New York federal judge is going to be able to affect non-New York employers. And, and so employment attorneys are even saying, well, we don't know. It's, it's unclear. So we'll talk about that more in September. As I said, follow that FMLA Insights blog and you can get up-to-date information, <clears throat> information. And Jeff Novak does a fantastic job of putting it in a practical application so that you can then go out there and administer it correctly or accurately. I've been hearing a lot of questions about the ACA measurement and stability periods, specifically measurement periods for those that didn't work during this, this COVID-19 period. And, and employers are saying, can we strike those months off the record from an, the measurement period standpoint? And that answer is also not, not straight, uh, not clear in a sense. For example, there, there's been no guidance saying that the employer has to disregard those months. So for now, you continue to count those months against the measurement, measurement period. 
which of course, if you do that, what does that mean? Well, most likely it means your employee won't be considered full time because they didn't work for three, four or five months. Um, but what if you're an employer and you want to strike it off the record yourself? You want to disregard that time frame because you don't want to you don't want your employees to have to uh, miss out on what they when they would have otherwise been full time. You could be more generous than you have to be per the law, but you need to make sure your carrier is on board with that. So if your carrier is okay with that, if you run it by your carrier and your carrier says, okay, you can allow them to be seen as eligible by removing those months from the measurement period, then, then yes, you could be more generous than the law allows. And we expect that there's going to be more guidance that we will need if another stimulus package is going to be passed. But for right now, these are the, those two items are our guidance wish list. I'll leave you with a few resources. You can follow our blog at Bolton. You can subscribe at boltonco.com slash blog. Anytime there's any federal mandates or federal updates to legislation or anything that is, is important to know from a federal standpoint, as well as we have other team members that contribute to that blog with regards to business insurance and so forth. So it's great to subscribe there. If you have any benefit-related questions or you have questions about the, the template and you're a Bolton client, you can contact your client management team or your client manager. And also for Bolton clients, you have access to ThinkHR. So just a reminder that ThinkHR has several forms. They have an FFCR, a leave request form, a return to work checklist, sample welcome back letter. They have a lot of really great stuff available so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And as far as employment matters go, I always reference Fisher Phillips' website. I go there many times a week. They're fantastic. It's a great, it's public information with frequently asked questions, legal alerts, even practice, industry practice uh, insights for specific industries. It is just, uh, and they have, you know, they even have templates there as well. So I recommend checking out that site. Give yourself about 30 minutes to look around and see everything they've got because it is in different areas. But for the most part, it's very intuitive. So those are some of my recommendations when you're looking for resources. That's it for this session. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you next month. Bye, everyone. <music>